Once again, to What's Out There, the paranormal podcast from the Out There Paranormal Group. Talking for you on this episode, you have myself, Nigel, all on my lonesome again, here to try and excite you all with some random topic that has recently appeared on my paranormal radar. Recently, we've been greeted on social media with images of children dressed up for World Book Day. Hidden in amongst the plethora of Disney princesses and Marvel superheroes were some really rather clever costumes, and it got me thinking. Yes, I know. Sound the alarm. He's thinking again. I loved to read as a child, devouring books at a very rapid rate, immersing myself in the mythical worlds of J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Enjoying the simple tales of the Moomin Trolls and the madcap adventures of Professor Brainstorm. We never had a World Book Day when I was a child. Books were a large part of my world and I really did not need a special day to encourage me to read. However, I would have loved the chance to dress up as a character for one of my favourite books. But who would I choose? Our family budget would have not stretched to anything really elaborate and my parents were not that involved in my school life. I was largely left to just get on with it. Just an occasional clout, when the inevitable bad school report made its way home, was about as much attention as I got. Believe you me, there were a fair few of those. I did not exactly cover myself with glory when I was at school. Given the chance to dress up, though, I would have been Stig. Yes, that's right, Stig. Not the Stig. For those of you who have watched the antics of this silent racing driver on Top Gear, my Stig lived in a dump, out of place, out of time, and he was friends with Barney. Not much of an effort would be required to assemble my Stig outfit. Wild hair? Yep, I had that. Covered in dirt? Most definitely. All I would need to add that finishing touch would be a furry loincloth, and maybe a club, or perhaps a spear with a flint head, which would not have been beyond my capabilities to build as a youngster who assembled random weaponry for fun. You see, I just love Stig of the Dump. Somehow this tale just struck a chord with me. I've lost count of the number of times I've actually read this book. I wanted to be Barney, to have Stig as a friend, to spend my days playing in a chalk pit, making a den out of rubbish and having a series of adventures with my caveman friend. As a child, I lived in Kent, within cycling distance of the ancient landscape of the Downs. I spent many happy hours wandering around building dens and visiting Neolithic sites. You may not have heard their names. Places like the Cauldron Stones, Addington and Chestnuts. 
These are all long barrow sites, Neolithic tombs, long stripped of their earthen mounds, with just the stones remaining. To me, this felt like living the book itself, the landscape that Stig would consider home, complete with echoes of the ancient time he came from. My childhood games left me with more than a passing interest in the people that built these mounds. As I grew older, I began to read more educational material about this era filling my mind with the history behind these truly ancient locations. As time went on, I added more of these sites to my list. Avebury, West Kennet, and of course, Stonehenge. I began to wonder why these sites were built and what was their meaning, especially the stone circles and the ritual landscapes they occupied. I took a leap of faith in 1991 and decided to try out for a degree. Julie signed up for the Open University and opted to study anthropology, with a view to specialise in early human belief systems. It took me six years, and in the process I discovered so many fascinating aspects about what makes us, us. One area that really grabbed my attention was ancestor worship, and oh my days, what a rabbit hole to fall into. It was my intention to continue my studies and go for a master's, digging even deeper into the belief systems of the Mesolithic, Neolithic and early Bronze Age cultures. Alas, this was not to be. Real life, you see, has this nasty habit of intervening and now my dotage I have given up on this dream. As my tired old brain, battered from a lifetime of work and fogged by my cancer treatment, has lost a lot of its capacity to hold information and no longer works as well as it used to. I am still, however, completely fascinated by ancestor worship and the various ways it can tie in with my research into all things paranormal. The twists and turns I could take you on would require a whole series of podcasts. It's a subject I may touch on again in future episodes, looking into particular cases, but for now, I shall give you just a simple overview and hope that it piques your interest in the same way it did for me. I've been racking my brain trying to think of a nice simple introduction to the subject. So here goes. Pay attention folks, this could get very messy and very complicated. We often think of ancestor worship as something from the ancient past, but ancestor worship is still alive and well today. You can find examples right across the world, as many nationalities, religions and cultures still practice it to some extent. Let me give you an example in its most basic form. We all have relatives who have died, passed over, shuffled off this mortal coil. We have various ways to remember them. A piece of jewellery, maybe an item of clothing, or just a simple photograph. We hold these items, look at them and maybe a memory comes to the surface. These tangible items bring our lost loved ones back to life. In the case of items like jewellery, it feels as if you are carrying the person with you, their spirit contained within the treasured items, always there with you, always looking out for you. You may sense their presence, you may feel like talking to them or even ask their advice. A reverence of sorts for the person contained within this personal memento. Modern ancestor worship in its most simplest form. A tenuous link? You may well think that. I like to think of it more as human nature. 
We grow to love certain individuals, to respect them, to value the opinions they have, the guidance that they give us, and we miss all of these qualities when they have gone. We want to call on them for help, to be safe in the knowledge that even though they are not physically there with us, somehow they will hear us and give us a sign and inspire us to make the right choices. In a sense, to be there when we need them spiritually, reaching across to stand with us in our time of need. Time to wind back the years to around 2100 BCE, the twilight period of the Neolithic, where stone makes way for bronze and farming is commonplace. You were living in southwest England, not far from the ritual complexes around Avebury and Stonehenge. It's spring. You are making ready to begin to sow your crops. A good harvest is so important, food to help get you through the winter, so you need to make sure that everything is in place. You gather with the rest of your village as the bones are brought out. Their reverence so important. Ancestral spirits bound within them, called upon to give blessings and guidance for the coming season. In your hand, you are clutching an arm bone. The rest of the skeleton lies buried beneath the floor of your hut. Kin from generations back, a farmer like you, perhaps your grandfather or an uncle, always with you, brought out at these special times his spirit there with you, reassuring, watching guiding. It's so important that your spiritual ancestor is there with you. A little melodramatic perhaps. Okay, yes, but the ancestor worship theory is based on archaeological evidence from across a number of locations, not just in England but spread across Europe, the Middle East and China too. In fact, there are examples of ancestor worship all over the world. As I mentioned previously, I could go into some very complicated explanations, all very dry and a little bit boring, and that's not the objective of this podcast. I do think, however, perhaps a few examples might be in order. Let's start in the Middle East, a name you may recognise from the pages of the Old Testament, Jericho whose mighty walls were breached by Joshua and his trumpet-blowing mates. In 1953, archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon discovered a group of seven skulls. The skulls she found had been decorated with plaster to recreate human faces and had shells as eyes. Some showed traces of paint. At the time these people were alive, around 9,500 years ago, Jericho was one of the largest settlements in the Middle East. Mourning the dead was one of the shared rituals that helped bind the society together. Initially, each plastered skull would have been a known individual, but as time passed, they likely became ancestor figures who may have been worshipped. Since Kenyon's discovery, more than 50 such ornamented skulls have been discovered in Neolithic sites from the Middle East to central Turkey. While researchers generally agree that the objects represent an early form of ancestor worship, very little is known about who was chosen to be immortalised in plaster thousands of years ago and why. To add to the mystery, the people of Jericho had a mortuary practice of burying loved ones under their houses, a practice that has been found in a few other places. 
One such example being Skara Bray in the Orkney Islands, a place well worth looking into as the islands have a fascinating ritual landscape. Now, let's head over to Turkey, where an international team of researchers have provided new insight into the burial rituals of, and I really hope I say this right, Katalhoyuk, considered the oldest city in the world. Another site where bodies were buried under the floors of houses to keep the ancestors close. These remains were dug up and possibly used in some form of ancestor worshipping rituals. To add to the ritual, pigments were used to colour the skeletons and to paint murals on the walls of the rooms where the burials took place. Okay, back to Blighty and an investigation carried out by scientists at Bristol University over the last five years has yielded information suggesting that particular Bronze Age individuals near to the end of their lives arranged to have themselves buried with a particularly unusual type of grave good. Namely, bones from potentially significant people who have died, in many cases, hundreds of years earlier. The bones were not limited to being from the same individual. Some graves contained relic bones from three or more people, ranging in age from 80 to 450 years old. The graves all belonged to high status or special individuals, being buried with bones from long dead individuals. You may be asking why do this? One answer may be that it's done perhaps in the hope that the souls from these bones may help guide them to the other world. One such artifact was a human leg bone that had been made into a flute of sorts, so maybe we could remember that individual by playing a merry tune on his femur. In fact, ancestor worship continues in various forms across all periods of history. If you look, you can find examples in ancient Egypt plus Greek and Roman history. Let's pick on a classic example, the medieval period, a time where it became incredibly important to possess various bits of venerated religious figures, especially saints. These remains could grant you a miracle cure or being a little more cynical, provide a much needed income from pilgrims who would willingly travel miles to make their offerings just to be near the finger bones of St Benedict or a vial of the Virgin Mary's breast milk. In fact, there were so many pieces of the true cross doing the rounds that it would have been possible to make a bloody huge replica of the genuine article if you put them all together. These items, called relics, were placed into purpose-built reliquities Elaborate containers often made from materials like gold and silver and covered in precious stones. The faithful would venerate these relics by bowing before the reliquary or kissing it. All in the name of worship, absolute faith placed in the fact that somehow these bits and pieces held the incredible powers they were purported to have and provide the blessings needed by those who chose to venerate them. You see, is yet another form of ancestor worship. There are still quite a few of these relics around if you fancy doing your own bit of venerating. For example, just pop on over to Rome and visit the church of San Silvestro in Capite. They have the head of John the Baptist in a box, by all accounts. 
of course, if you want to fall into a massive internet rabbit hole, then may I suggest a little Google search into Victorian attitudes towards death and mourning. So many fascinating areas to look into. Mourning jewellery made from dead people's hair, the possibility of post-mortem photography and the birth of spiritualism, all with tangible links to connecting with the spirits of those dearly departed ancestors. In fact, a good starting point would be to dive over and have a look at my friend Kate Turrell's blog, Burials and Beyond. Kate has a fascinating collection of hair jewellery and has a wonderful blog where she pens regular articles on the ways you remember are dead. Kate also has a lovely Patreon where she shares her collections of strange objects and boy oh boy has she got a few of those. If you're interested in dipping into Kate's strange world, I've included the links to her Beryls and Beyond blog and her Patreon in the description below. As I said before, you can look at any historical period and find some form of ancestor worship. Our belief that spirits or the souls of individuals are held in various objects to be venerated or held as mementos has never really gone away. Instead, it just subtly changed from bones to inanimate objects to be more socially acceptable. So there you go. A little glimpse into the world of ancestor worship. I really hope that I've managed to pique your interest a little bit with this as well, because it is a really, really fascinating subject. It's something I'm so interested in, as you may have gathered. But you see, all this ancestor worship talk has got me thinking. Could it possibly be why we are so readily convinced that even the most mundane objects can hold someone's spirit? Not in a venerated sense, but more as an object of fear, a haunted object, a vessel for something unpleasant or even demonic. And that, my dear listeners, is a whole other podcast. And of course, you can guarantee that at some stage we're going to cover it. Anyway, a little bit shorter than usual. Uh, like I said, I really just wanted to give you a taster of it. But I do have to give you a final word of warning, though. Please don't go digging up your granddad for inspiration. That sort of thing is a little frowned upon these days. Until next time, sleep well and don't have any nightmares. Goodbye.